What's going on, everyone, and welcome back to the NerdWide Podcast. This is officially episode 37, titled The Recapisode. I'm your host, Tyler Haynes, with my good friend and Recapa host, Chris Rivers. You said episode 37. 37, 97, listen. 37 <laughs> was like two years ago. <laughs> episode 97, The Recapisode. There we go. <laughs> How's your week oh. been, Chris? Uh, it's been good. I had one day to work this week. Oh, so. that's exciting. Just Yeah. Yeah, I needed it, though, with all these shows I had to watch. To I watched some of them at work. No, no, no. Yeah. I watched three episodes at work. Just and it was, But luckily, my coworker, she's really into National Treasure, too. And so, and she's already seen, she keeps, well, week to week updated. And so... I was talking to her, like, as the episode was happening, I was like, oh, no, I can't believe, you know, X, Y, and Z happened. She goes, oh, it gets better. I'm like, oh. And so it was just fun to talk to, you know, like how real time as I was watching it. Um, but it was, that's fun. I can't wait. This is, we got some shows to talk about. I'm not going to say fun shows because there was one that I'm not a fan of. But we will get there, luckily, not too far away. Quick housekeeping are recap when well, i recap our best of 2022 episode is up on youtube and podcasting service just search in nerdwide podcast uh best of 2022 should be the first thing that pops up uh, get to listen to all uh, all of our honorable mentions our top five or tv movies and video games of the year 2022 had a lot of fun there just leave your comments down below what your top five were as we start off 2023 now uh quick housekeeping though don't forget to subscribe to either our youtubing or podcasting service of your choice if you enjoy the show make sure you leave us a thumbs up or youtube or give us a good rating whatever podcasting service you use if you don't enjoy what you see or hear, make sure you leave us a comment down below so we know how to improve the show. If there's something wrong, something you don't like, just let us know. Can't fix it if you don't let us know what is wrong. Um, the pot, uh, if you go the extra little bit, patreon.com slash nerdwide. Three different tiers for three different monetary values, each going up in price. I think $3 is the highest you can do. And if you hit that $3 tier, you can suggest shows to watch, books to read, movies to watch, games to play, whatever you want us to do. And we will talk, review, recap. Whatever those are. Say this as well. If you go back and watch our 2022 year in review, there are some shows, like the ones we're going to be talking about tonight, that are not included because they mm. weren't finished. Correct. So these might make 2023. It's a good point because it. I I know, I know National Treasure is a a contender for me so far because yeah. it's uh, I don't think it's missed yet in my opinion but we're going to talk about that after Doom Patrol so a little weird of an episode that we would normally do of course last week was our best of 2022 this episode is the recap episode as you know we recap and review all of our nerdy shows that interest us uh, DC Marvel things like that and we missed a lot over the break. And three episodes for both of our shows of Doom Patrol and National Treasure, which we're talking about tonight. So we're going to recap and talk about all three for each of these. So it's a total of six episodes. And then we're going to review and talk about spoiler-free of Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. And that's going to be it for the episode. And then next week, which will be episode 98, we will be full on the Nerdwide podcast you'd love and to see and listen to. 
So let us get through this real quick, and we will go from there. Doom Patrol, Season 4, Episode 4, titled Casey Patrol. And Fury is here for his debut of the episode. And we're going back to Nerds and Beyond by Mal on Nerds and Beyond. Let's see if he's going to stay here. Let's see. Can't even see him, I'm sure. All right, buddy. Are you going to stay in here? Let's see his tail. Oh, he's heading for the door. I think so. All right. So, episode four, Casey Patrol. And I'm going to go ahead and let you know, hated this episode. There was not one thing I liked about it. I'm just going to be 100% transparent here. Yeah. This was like, it was good to see uh, Niles' daughter again, Dorothy. But other than that, I was like, eh. No, that's not right. Dorothy's the, yeah, Dorothy. Okay. Anyways, Danny's the Danny's the alternate reality or whatever yeah. you want to call. Starts off with I won't let you get away with this Terminox. Whatever you're planning, you know I'll put a stop to it. Right off the bat, uh, we're treated to a comic book style sequence of a space-faring heroine named Space Case in her fight against her, in her nemesis, Torminox. When the scene shifts to the present, we see Dorothy Spinner at Danny's ambulance telling the story of how she, her imaginary friend Candlemaker, and the dead boy detectives tracked down Niall Calder's immortality talisman. We last saw Dorothy back in season three when she left with the dead boys. She tells a small crowd assembled at Danny's ambulance that she used the talisman to bring Niles forth from the afterlife and tell him everything she never said when he was alive. Love, she says, always wins out. Elsewhere, we see Maura Lee corrupt and some of the Dannysons looking at their Bona Devada Pride art sign in a real-world location has been vandalized by bigots, F off and die, very original and eloquent, and they've come to repaint it, despite the locals trying to intimidate them. They return to the campyard with Damien the ambulance and co corrupt notes that's getting pretty full. Dorothy sits in the campyard alone despite everyone socializing around her. Danny asks if she's okay and tries to cheer her up with the ice cream sundae to no avail. Corrupt watches Dorothy stomp off after her interaction with Danny. After questioning Danny over whether Dorothy's alright, Corrupt goes after her. While she tries to connect with Dorothy inside her trailer, Corrupt reminds Dorothy how lucky they are to have Danny to be able to have a safe place to come home to. Outside, we see a multiplying cloud of mechanical bugs moving through the campsite, taking out the other Danny's one by one. Corrupt picks up a comic from Dorothy's bed. It's Space Case. She suggests that Dorothy should do as Space Case does and go and find some of her own adventures and even suggests Dorothy seek out the Doom Patrol. Quote, make new friends. Got it, Dorothy snaps, less than pleased at, an, at the intervention. As Corrupt tries to leave, the lights go out. The pair step outside to find the campyard dark and you're empty with only Acid Diamond sit, sat near the campfire with her back to them. Corrupt squashes one of the mechanical bugs... Uh, between her hands as it approaches she sends Dorothy back inside the trailer a moment later the, she follows running into the trailer as she discovers that all the dandies have been corrupted by the bugs and reduced to a zombie like state with metal masks affixed to their faces and glowing red eyes the metal mask zombies besiege the trailer. Corrupt asks Danny to jump them out to a safe location but they say that they can't go right now Dorothy recognizes the things they're trying to bust in though they look like the foot soldiers of the bad guy from her Space Case comic book. Corrupt asks her to get the candle maker to help them, but Dorothy is determined only Space Case will know how to defeat them. A rumble of thunder and a few thuds, and suddenly the front cover of Dorothy's comic book, where Space Case had been standing in traditional superhero pose, is now blank. There's a knock on the door, and after sharing a cautious look, Corrupt and Danny, Dorothy open it. Space Case, fully human, steps inside. 
Quote, I'd love to have proper intro, she says, but we better shake a leg. If the Vectra are here, he's not far behind, with he, of course, being Torminox. Outside, we see one our purple pig-nosed villain roaring angrily. Corrupt Dorothy and Space Case venture outside the trailer. Space Case explains that she's defeated Torminox before 143 times, and she has no doubt that she can do it one more. Though she does have the strange feeling which turns out to be hunger. Space Case is incredibly perky. Um, Dorothy, that's a very weird way to just end a sentence. Um, Dorothy thinks that instead of imagining Space Case, Casey... Uh, she pulled her right out of the comic. Corrupt and Dorothy debate whether Casey knows that she's not real and whether they should tell her. Torbinox is keeping busy using his red flashy electronic powers. Torbinox accesses Danny's ambulance. Outside, we see a sign where Danny is saying he's here. After a few moments of Torbinox's power, the sign flashes to nothing. As one of the Dannys and zombies tries to attack them, Dorothy tries to explain to Casey that she came from a comic book. This is the real world and death is permanent here, so maybe she shouldn't light her their, their friends up like a Christmas tree with her electric powers. Dorothy shows Casey the comic book and relates her history that she's Casey Brink, and when she was seven, her father got into a horrible lab accident and became Torminox. Quote, you loved your father once, but after he turned into Torminox, you knew he was gone. Dorothy quotes from the comic. Casey's oblivious, obviously very confused, but before they can dig into it any further, Torminox activates all his metal mass zombies and they have to run. Fleeing out of Danny's ambulance into the real world, Dorothy and Corrupt are met by Torminox himself, and he came from one thing, the immortality talisman that used to belong to Dorothy's father, Niles Calder. When she refuses to give it to him, he turns his powers onto Danny's ambulance, lighting them up red and shrinking them down to a small cube. Casey manages to get out of Danny's ambulance before they're shrunk down, but finds that she can't fight her father when he says please. In desperation, Dorothy summons Candlemaker. The flame-chested creature manages to buy them enough time to flee by sacrificing himself. He ends up a small cube just like Danny. I thought this scene was really cool. You know, Candlemaker, of course, one of our big baddies monsters from last season, and him like having his own personality now, and you know, us knowing what he is. Um, and making another appearance in season four and just sacrificing himself for Dorothy was really cool. And I thought that was a nice touch to the episode. Probably the only thing. While the trio escapes, Corrupt notices that the Bonnet of Vada mural has been defaced once again, this time with a doodle of a cheerily smiling uh, male body part. Shaking her head, Corrupt dashes inside the warehouse that she led Dorothy and Casey to and they barricade the door. Inside, Casey admits that she froze when fighting her father because this time it's different. If what you say is true and death is permanent here, then he'd really be gone and what would I be left with, she asks. Maybe you don't have to find out corrupt answers. Maybe he's still in there. There's always a way to reach someone, she says. Just ask Dorothy, which is a nice play on word to Candlemaker as well. Before the heart-to-heart -heart about fathers can get any further, corrupt spots someone through the window, graffitiing her art sign. Oh, hell no. She storms outside and confronts them, only to find out that it's a young guy trying to help, to cover up what was done before. He says not everyone here feels the same way they do. Thanking him, corrupt gets an idea. The trio and lurking graffiti kid line up outside and wait for Torminox. They've spray-painted a memory of Casey and her father when she was young. When he arrives demanding the necklace or he'll destroy Danny and the Candlemaker, their plan seems to work for only a moment, until Torminox grabs Casey and holds his gun to her head. Dorothy removes the talisman reluctantly and sadly explains that it's all she has left of her father. She never got to say all the things to him that she needed to say. It was all a lie. Crystal and the dead boys had to get the talisman for her. She hasn't spoken to Candlemaker or any of her other friends in months because they all remind her too much of her dad. Danny, the Doom Patrol, all of them. 
They remind her of what she lost, and she never got to tell Niles that she loved him. But she also never got to tell him that she hated him for keeping her a child and then being gone when she finally had to grow up. Deciding that, deciding that some things are better left unsaid, Dorothy offers the amulet to Torminox. Releasing Casey, Torminox takes the amf, amf, uh, amulet. Uh, Casey needs her dad. Dor Dorothy chastises him for angry. Uh, F you for turning your back on that. Torminox tosses them to the Danny and Candlemaker Cubes, then disappears. Back in the Danny's ambulance campyard, Corrupt and the other Danny's are sitting around the campfire recuperating. I'm sorry I couldn't protect you, Danny writes in the smoke of the fire. No matter how hard you try, you can't protect us from anything, Corrupt answers, not by yourself. Corrupt tells the Danny's ends that someone reminded her that, that that night that there are still good people in the world, no matter how hard things might be out there right now. True allies. And if they ever really want to change the world, they have to start living in it, including Danny. Ever since you became an ambulance, you've been doing triage. It's time for the Danizans to start making safe places of their own in the real world. Corrupt leads the Danizans in the recital of Wilco's wet light around the campfire. Inside Dorothy's trailer, Casey gra grapples with her life and her daddy issues being fiction. She wants to meet whoever wrote their story and make them write a new one. Dorothy offers to help her find them. The pair step out into the sunny campyard. Much happier looking Danizans fill the space as Dorothy and Casey look out over them. Don't worry, I'll tell them you said goodbye, a Danny sign says. They summon Casey and Dorothy a car and tell them it's time for a new adventure. Where to, Casey asks as they jump into the old Buick. Cloverton, Dorothy says decisively. They, town, they tow Dorothy's trailer out of the portal under Corrupt's watchful eye. In the last scene, we see Dr. Janice, the emotional vampire from episode 3, handing over the emotional essence collection violets she filled with Rita's emotions. She places it on a desk in a dark, void-like room, giving them to a person who's drafting art for the Space Case comics. Immortus will rise, as she states, through a glowing portal. Torminox arrives. He gives the man the talisman of immortality and asks whether the rise of Immortus will let him, let him be with his daughter. The unseen person assures them that with Immortus's rise, they will achieve everything they have ever dreamed of. <sighs> did not yeah. like this episode. I mean, the it was a lot. I like that we got to see some of the characters from season three that we haven't seen in a while, but that was just about it. I felt like this was a throwaway story to get that talisman and Dorothy out of Danny. And that's, that's just about all I think that it came from. It would have been nice if we had gotten a few scenes of doom patrol. Yeah in here even if they weren't doing a whole lot just to balance it uh corrupt has a couple of funny lines about torminax uh, at one point she, uh, she calls him TurboTax. yeah and then another time tampax right um but that's really, that's really <laughs> it um uh, now had they been able to had they been able to work in something else to really make the story interesting, it would have been great. But um, maybe they'll utilize Space Case in an interesting way right. going forward. Um, I wonder if her electric power is going to have something to do with Larry and Ooh. helping him out. Yeah. I don't know. Because she was... Because um, her powers... And she's in space as well, so her powers looked a lot. Like, yeah. um, Keeg. Keegs. Yeah. I'm trying to find out who played Space Case. Madeline Zima. But I know her from something else. I'm trying to figure out what that is. I meant to look it up after I watched the episode, but. Uh, apparently she was in the nanny. That's new. I guess she was one of the kids. Um, 
Doom Patrol. What do I know her from? Like she's she's had a lot of things out, but nothing I've seen. Graham she did look familiar for one episode. But there was something like I've seen her in a lot. I mean, Grace. I mean, I don't uh, watch Grace. So that's not it. Oh, she played Gretchen on Heroes. That's exactly what it was. Okay. Huh. There we go. Wow, man. Talk about a show that I miss. Yeah. All right. She's in a lot of things. All right. Episode five, The Youth Patrol. Again, not a strong episode, but I, I, I liked it better than the last one. Yeah. All right. Doom Manor is peaceful in the opening shot. The outside. I got the Titans thing up. Let's put Doom Patrol. There we go. Uh, Doom Manor is peaceful in the opening shot. The outside is quiet and calm within Larry's meditating in his room. And that's where the relaxing air ends as we see his flashbacks to battling against Dr. Janice and Mr. 104 and images of a woodland cabin. Reluctantly, Larry leaves a pensive Vic to watch Rita, who hasn't woken since their adventures in her old movies, and go searching for Keeg. Uh, Jane is taking a little time for herself, setting the mood with some music. <laughs> this is uh, a drag from a packed glass pipe and a piece of candy before getting down to business and she doesn't get too far that way. <laughs> a few minutes, moments after closing her eyes, she appears in the underground with her pants still undone. After a bumbling explanation to the residents of her own psyche of exactly what she definitely was not doing and how not cool it was to pull her down there in that exact time, she is told they didn't summon her at all. She arrived on her own accord at that moment. Meanwhile, Root has been fixing the car they found while hunting for zombie Darren Jones. I told you that car was coming back into play. Somehow, someway. Uh, Roosh thinks it'll be a good distraction for Cliff. She's right. He's immensely grateful and loving the experience, despite the car still being a piece of junk. Suddenly, Willoughby materializes in the back seat and orders the Doom Patrol to assemble. I always love seeing Mark Shepard. Ever since Supernatural, anything he's in, he's always fun to watch. Uh, Rita wakes immediately she notices H spots on her hands and runs to a mirror she's met with gray hairs and wrinkles which is a horror to Rita in the woods Larry is searching for key he is assailed by visions again before passing out as he sprawls a leaf litter Mr. 104 can be seen standing over him back at Doom Manor Willoughby is helping himself to a drink when the team is gathered minus Rita who's rifling through Niles' old office for cure to her uh, age ish situation, Willoughby updates them that Immortus will rise. The question of who exactly Immortus is, is finally gets answered. A forgotten deity who could re eat reality as they know it whole. Willoughby gives them some information. Cliff, Jane, Rita, and Larry all look the same as they did years ago because Niles imbued him with pieces of the immortality amulet he took from Eric Morden. The amulet is made from a piece of Immortus. As long as the Doom Patrol avoid the evil entities working for him and keep their longevity, everything will be fine and Immortus will not rise. Rita, definitely aging after her running with Dr. Janice, finds a box marked experimental, untested, and dangerous. She digs out a potion that she hopes will de-age her. Cliff charges into the room, the rest of the team and Willoughby in tow. They were concerned by the Chaos Magician's explanation that the longevity can be extracted from them, so they ran to find the person who has recently mysteriously had emotions extracted by the evil entity. Rita jumps at Cliff's sudden entry and drops the potion. A purple cloud fills the entire room. It certainly is a de-aging spell, although it's not a very good one. The team looks exactly the same except for Vic, who has developed clusters of pimples and some impressive train track braces. Cliff is still Robot Man, but he's developed a throwback cowboy look. Rita's clothes and glasses date back to 1937, and Jane looks like she's found a major sale at Hot Topic. 
Willoughby has ye old clothes on and a medieval floppy hat, and because of the strange way Chaos Magicians age, also developed a shampoo commercial worthy head of hair. One of the funniest parts of the episode was him talking about his hair. Uh, Rouge, however, hasn't changed at all. She was the only one who thought to hold her breath thanks to her bureau training. Larry comes to an interrogation room, but he isn't the one being interrogated. The vision is of Mr. 104 sitting in the chair being cross-examined. Again, another Heroes alumni. He learns that his name is Rama, and he was born in 1928. He moved to London to study science. Mr. 104 swears to the interrogator that he believes that all this information is true. A line of subjects surround his chair. Mr. 104 is commanded to begin air augmentation. When he hesitates, one of the subjects pulls a gun. Reluctantly, he draws all of the water out of the subject's bodies, which kills them. Leaving the villain, the vision, Larry finds himself in a cabin. Mr. 104 is also there, and Key can be seen glowing inside his chest. When Larry approaches, Mr. 104 pins him against the wall. Larry tells uh, him that he only wants his kid, but Mr. 104 says he's been trying to get rid of him, and he will not leave him. Keeg zaps out of Mr. 104, only to bounce off of Larry's chest and catapult straight back into Larry. Uh, straight back in. Larry's out cold once again. Every time I keep saying Mr. 104, I feel like I'm uh, a DJ or a radio station. <laughs> Willoughby uses a map and pendulum to find his old mentor, Miss April, before the de-aging spell sends him back even further to children, then babies, then uh, Cliff says we'll be jizzified. Uh, Cliff gasps in horror. Thankfully, Miss April's teleporting tea room is in Toledo, which is only two towns over. Larry wakes up in an old-fashioned radiation suit. This time, he's the one in the chair. More subjects enter and surround him. Against his will, Larry's mask is removed and the subjects all die. On the way to Toledo, the Doom Patrol stops at a gas station, heading to get Vic snacks for his team metabolism. Cliff asks Jane if she thinks they'd have been friends in school. She's glad that she missed out on the hormonal-driven school years. Cliff argues that those years helped make you who you are, and some of those experiences saved his life. Their conversation gets waylaid when Jane spots some teens hanging out next to the store, and they strike a deal to buy beer in exchange for smoke. And I know I've said this on other seasons, but I, I love Cliff and Jane's relationship, and this episode and even the next one really strengthens their bond, and I just I love seeing more of that. Of course, um... Larry is still my favorite character, but Cliff and Jane's bond is just top notch. Everybody else on the, the team, I really care less about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is the best on the show. Yeah, it's whoever is writing Jane and Cliff are, I feel like, are doing the best work out of all. Yeah, of them. I would even say it's better than anything on Doom Patrol or Titans, as far as yes, as far as the yeah, yeah. Um, Rita and Rouge brave the gas station restroom. Rouge, oh, well, I missed that whole, uh, let's see. So their conversation gets waylaid when Jane spots some teens hanging out next to the store and they strike a deal to buy beer in exchange for a smoke. Rita and Rouge brave the gas station restroom. Rouge attempts to have a heart-to-heart with Rita while peeing, but Rita refuses to do so while being stared at by a used condom. When Rouge cautions her to lower expectations of Miss April being able to DH her, Rita leaves. Outside, Cliff, Jane, and our new friends argue with Willoughby until he agrees to let them detour to a party. Just for five minutes, he agrees eventually. Rita storms off. Rouge follows, telling Willoughby they will catch up eventually. In the visions, Larry is not partying. He's back in the chair with his mask being removed as the subjects around him are overtaken by radiation sickness and drop. He cries out, shouts out, begging Keek to make it stop. Mr. 104 watches affected from the other room. He reappears next to Larry and reaches out to him. 
Despite Larry not wearing his mask, it's okay he comfort he comforts. Turns out that Mr. 104 is the one only one person Larry can't hurt because he can turn his skin to lead. The vision ends and the pair are sprawled on the cabin floor, fingertips touching. Again, like Larry and 104, I'm really intrigued by this relationship uh, and where this is coming from. And I'm really excited to see more of it. I really hope 104 does not die at the end of this season uh, or soon because it's just, you know, these characters don't stick around for too terribly long. So. Well, we gotta we gotta hope that there's a season five. Yeah, we again no news for Doom Patrol or Titans. <laughs> no. What's what's coming up? So I mean, we'll then uh, uh, we'll, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> the Doom Patrol and Willoughby are thriving in an illicit pool party en route to Toledo. Willoughby is smoking his wizard strength Kush. Cliff is doing keggers, and James relaxing at the edge of the pool. The whole team loosens loosens up. Jane offers Vic a smoke before admitting she never had any teenage years because Kay didn't create her until later, which is so sad to think about. Vic opens up about his friends back home and fears he's missed the chance to reconnect. Jane encourages him to try again, telling him that if she had something like that, she'd do anything to get it back. As Vic goes to rejoin the party, Jane takes a drag and puffs out glowy rainbow clouds. No longer in the party world, she sheds a tear. A trail of stepping stones appears heading to the pool across to Kay. Jane approaches her, who is ignoring her. She says, I know, I'm sorry, I effed up. Jane implores, referring to the earlier alone time. This body is not mine, it has always been yours. Finally, Kay looks directly at Jane and reaches across to crater her cheek and wipe away her tears. It's our body, Jane. She tells her before the vision fades away and Jane's return to the party. Loved this scene. I don't know what about it, but it was very well done. I love the lighting of it. Um, and then... I think this is this is one of those seasons that I really enjoy Jane as a character and her character development and all of her personalities. But I thought that was a very good, well done scene. Across the pool, uh, they uh, they've done well with that too in past seasons when she and Kay have heart to hearts. Yeah, you know, she's one on one with them too, and it's yeah. Uh, again, this, the Jane is slowly starting to become a, a great character on the show. To me, at first I did not like her, but you know, I'm glad to see where we're going with her. Uh, across the pool, Jane sees Willoughby still in his medieval garb, but younger. Jane, the child Willoughby, exclaims, causing her to look down at herself and see that she too has de-aged further. At a dark bus terminal, Rouge catches up with an even younger Rita. She admits that the de-aging spell did actually affect her, but she couldn't bear to look at her teenage self and be reminded of a painful time, so she used her abilities to change back. Rouge tells Rita that when her powers manifested, people didn't react as expected. She lost a lot of people, people she thought cared. Heartbreak, she says, stains the soul except for her as a void. Maybe that's why she is the way she is. She becomes the void. It's a chasm between her and her meaningful connection with anybody. Rita reflects on how meaningful their connection once was, that Rouge was her best friend and she misses her. Sobbing, Rouge tells Rita how sorry she is. There's not a day that goes by that she doesn't think about the, how she hurt her and what she did to Malcolm and the sisterhood. She will never deserve an ounce of forgiveness. Rouge reveals her teenage self and they give a hug. Jane and Willoughby go to get Cliff, but he won't leave. An argument ensues with Jane asking why he would choose a group of burnout teens over his actual friends. He says, you mean the actual friends who just want me to punch the shit out for them? The actual friends who didn't even care to ask if I was doing okay when I'm clearly I am not. As Cliff walks away to party on, Willoughby asks where the hell Vic is. Vic turns out he's at his friend Derek's apartment, knocking on the door. He looks. He took Jane's advice, it seems, while looking like a kid. He's got to see how his old friend. Vic, Derek asks, unsure, stepping forward, Vic pushes in for a hug. 
In the distant, mysterious cabin, Larry wakes up again. Mr. 104 is still slumped against the bed. He confesses that it isn't the first time he's seen a bit of Larry's past and calls Lee Keeg Larry's guardian angel. 104 admits to Larry that he won't always be able to control his powers, and when he loses control, he'll cause a massive extinction event. That's why he made his pledge to Mortis to return to longevity. They, that makes no sense to Larry, but he recognizes a, devil, a devil's bargain when he sees one. Let me help you, Larry offers. What you're going through, I get it. He believes that there's been another way that, that doesn't involve violence or pledges. He reaches out to hand uh, to help Mr. 104 up, reintroducing himself, Larry. Rama, Mr. 104 says in return after a moment, smiling. He jumps out of Rama and back into Larry. This is his plan all along. With a sniping, uh, snipping sound, a portal opens up behind Larry and he tumbles in, yelling. Rama dives in after him. Jane and Willoughby are predictably squabbling. Jane is telling Willoughby to shut up and let her revert to splooge in peace when the Knights Templar turn up with Bunbury. They've come to rescue Willoughby. Released from their cage, Bunbury chitters away. They berate and belittle Willoughby before with the magical sneeze and removing the spells, the spells effects. Returning to Jane, Bunbury attempts the same. She begins to run, but the spell progresses once more and reduces her to a baby. Bunbury coos over her for a moment before Willoughby urges her to take what you need and be done with it. Bunbury extracts a glowing purple energy from Jane as the credits roll. I love how this big, huge wizard, uh, magical creature is a small little rabbit. <laughs> it just, yeah. just cracks me up. Yeah, I also think that it's interesting, too, that, um, of course, in the next episode, we find out what's happened to him. But um, he basically takes Jane's uh, longevity. Mm -hmm. I guess to kind of, you know, we can protect it better than they can kind of scenario. But that, of course, ticks her off because, you know, as she puts it, um, she didn't give consent. Right. She didn't say that they could have it. She's just a baby. Right. <laughs> so. Um, the next episode, we're actually going to a different website because Nerds of Beyond had not actually put up their episode six one, which is the part one finale. So again, we do not know when Titans or Doom Patrol will return. I'm assuming Doom Patrol, uh, Titans will become before Doom Patrol, but we haven't heard anything yet. Again, nothing Warner. back from James Gunn on it either. So, It's Warner Brothers, so it may not come back. That's... Oh God! I hope it. I I just I don't know. We need we need some closure. Um, so this is from fugitives.com by Siddhartha Daz. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to get through the stuff. All right. The scene opens uh, showing Cliff working on his Gran Torino as Jane wakes up in the back seat, now back in her mature appearance. She recalls the incidents of the previous night as a dream. Cliff corrects her by saying those incidents were real and the de-aging spell was reversed. However, it seems like the reversal worked a little too well in Jane, as physical signs of aging indicate she lost her longevity. They speculate that Kipling has double-crossed them and stolen her longevity to aid Immortus. Jane grows anxious and horrified at the prospect of aging as she wants Cliff to assist her in getting her longevity back. Cliff has been dealing with her his own concerns with mortality and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in the last season. Hence, he wants to use whatever he has left of his life to give his grandson Rory memories to live by and advises Jane to utilize her time accordingly. Unable to persuade Cliff to assist her, Jane storms out of the garage. Jane goes to the underground to meet other personalities and warn them about the aging problem only to find out they are unbothered as ever. She also learns that Kay doesn't have any company, doesn't have company at the moment so she gives them her personality puzzle to solve. Even more irritated after hearing this, Jane chastises the others and rushes outside. Seeing she has no one else to turn to, Jane visits Shelley Byron, a.k.a. Mist, and confesses her feelings for her. 
It seems like he heeding Kay's advice, Jane wants to live her own life finally. However, just as Jane and Shelly are about to get any closer, Jane springs off, implying this isn't what she truly wants either. She locks herself up in her room and mopes. We see scissor-wielding henchmen uh, escorting Keeg-bound Larry in a pocket dimension named Orquith as they proceed toward a bone temple of sorts. Rama rescues him using his powers and reveals to Larry that it was his mission as a part of the Mortis cult to steal his longevity, something he wasn't willing to participate in more due to the risk of hurting people. Larry assures Rama that he will find a non-violent way of curing him. Rama places his absolute faith in Larry as they share a romantic moment. Rama opens a portal to the Doom Manor. Cliff is bewildered to find his mitten covered new hand gaining sentience, or is it the manifestation of his Parkinson's? Anyway, after a bout of self loathing conversation with his hand, who is pretending to be his grandchild Rory, it is revealed that months earlier, as the team tried to avert but but apocalypse, Cliff spared that single zombie butt he was brought that was brought by Jane and Vic. In the midst of the conversation, Cliff sees Larry appearing through a portal, assisted by Rama. Due to their past experience with Dr. Janice, Cliff finds it hard to trust him again, but Larry momentarily convinces him of Rama's changed motives. However, all of a sudden, Keek, Keek emerges, pushes Rama and Larry back into the pocket dimension through the portal, and, and throws Cliff backwards. Um, I, I feel really bad for Cliff. He's, especially with this whole Rory hand thing, I'm like, this guy just really just wants to be there for his grandson and is, has been very unsuccessful so far. And giving you to the point of having this his whole hand, he's got touch in one finger and he wants to use it, the, the first sensation feeling uh, Rory. But obviously it was brain. We've come to find out earlier in the season. But I just feel bad for him. But And the and the Parkinson's and, and everything that's going on with him, it's... He's probably the most tragic character on the show. Right. And it's, I just, I really like him. And uh, Fury is really insistent tonight. Uh, Vic returns to Doom Manor accompanied by Derek. They find a knockdown cliff in an open portal. Upon learning Larry and King are trapped on the other side, Vic quickly jumps through and asks Derek not to follow. Much to his displeasure, Derek follows him. Derek being a family man, Vic gets angry at him for drawing himself into a dangerous super... Uh, situation. Derek quickly reminds him that Vic is powerless too and that subconsciously he knows that Derek has always got his back. After having another brief round of uh, honest altercations, the two friends patch things up for good um, and Orkwith, they encounter the scissor men and Derek uses his quick wit to deduce that the magical pocket dimension filled with paper and a pen which is set up like a clue for his wish fulfillment. He uses his Dungeons and Dragons nerd cred to make their previously designed robot Mr. Invincible come to life. On the other hand, Rita wakes up as a formal self and remembers the previous night's misadventures of de-aging, reconciliation, and confessions. She urges that they return to Doom Manor, but finds Rouge to, to be an adamant about completing the mission of getting Rita's longevity back. Rouge speculates that Calder's Immortus Project might have been continued at the Bureau of Normalcy, and someone could have found a way to conjure this malevolent deity more Immortus. Rita is hesitant due to their past traumatic experiences regarding the Bureau, but Rouge manages to confess her by reinstituting re her as the leader of Doom Patrol. The duo infiltrates the Bureau and upon investigating finds out that Wally Sage, the metahuman with powers to create a life by drawing, is behind the Immortus Crisis. Rouge is at once taken aback as during her villainous years she was responsible in the first place by handing the once innocent boy to the Bureau so she could weaponize him. Rita takes hold of the situation and comforts her as they proceed to Wally's cell. The duo arrives at Wally's cell to find numerous sketches and ineligible 
uh, gibberish fixed to the walls, among which Immortal Rising Orkwith is mentioned. They find a broken, unhinged Wally trapped inside his cell, and Rouge attempts to free him as a form of making amends. They find no satisfying answer for him regarding Immortus, and Mortis. instead, as Rouge manages to break Wally open, Rita hallucinates about Malcolm's death and loses control over her body. In a brief moment of panic, oops, sorry, the ad's messed up, Rita turns into a blob. Rouge flees, and Wally is apparently mushed to death by Rita. Upon gaining consciousness, Rita is horrified over her actions, but her lamentation is cut short as Rouge remembers her that they have to escape the Bureau. Larry is once again captured by the scissors and repeatedly urges uh, Keeg to disclose the reason for his non-cooperation. Keeg shows him a vision of the future where a zombie butt mauled Larry and he had to sacrifice himself by flying to the sun in order to save humanity. For Keeg, Larry continuously getting into misadventures will only trigger that inevitable future, so he wants a normal life for his father. Larry understands Keeg's insecurity and agrees to sever his longevity if it, if it means Keeg's happiness. Cliff apologizes to a downheart and Jane and clasps her hands with his new hand uh, as a sign of the rekindling of their strong friendship. Uh, this is where he takes off the glove and says, you know, uh, so he said something about, like, of the, um, something about the love of his friends. You know, it doesn't matter who wants to touch first. And, of course, it's Jane's hand. Again, Cliff and Jane's relationship, one of the best that the show does. Um, as they move out to confront Immortus, they, they are visited by a gravely injured Kipling who warns them of the cult of Immortus, which has gotten even stronger by gaining Rita and Jane's longevity. He also adds that contrary to their speculations, the knights, along with Bunbury, were protecting Jane's longevity from the cult. His warnings don't phase the high spirits of Cliff and Jane, who reach Orquith to stop Immortus from rising. Vic and Derek utter the iconic Booyah catchphrase of Cyborg. Is like, uh, oh, sorry, something that really annoys me too, I hate the Cyborg is not Cyborg. And we're just using this character. I don't, I'm not going to understand the reasoning for this. Maybe to cut down on CGI cost or to, um, I don't know, I don't, story reasons, I don't like it. I just, Cyborg does not, not become Cyborg. I, it's never made any sense to me. Um, let's see. To say Booyah catchphrase Cyborg as they see the creation confronting the scissors, scissors in the cult. But their happiness is short-lived as a cult member turns the robot into a paper without even breaking a sweat. At this moment, the real identity of the cult leader is revealed to the audience who is Wally Sage. Cliff's hand starts talking again and promptly reminds him that he has left the refrigerator door open where he had stored the zombie butt. As the sixth episode of Doom Patrol Season 4 ends, we see the thawed-out butt escaping from captivity. Yep. It's on and popping now. Yeah, like uh, from here on out, like once we get back to the show, hopefully we get back to the show, it's going to start running. I mean, we've got the Apocalypse back on and Immortus situation. Like we are, they are right outside that temple and it's game on now. Um, they have all of the longevity except for um, Cliffs. So, I mean, they only have one. I don't, I don't know what's coming next. Because we saw the future at the beginning of the season. Nothing had to do with the Immortus. It was all just the Buttpocalypse. Uh, which is obviously started it now. And started from Doom Patrol Manor because of Cliff. But So was that really Wally in the cell? See, that's what I'm concerned with too. Like there's there's no way it's both of them. He's now both places. So I'm, I'm very curious. The one in the world where Immortus and stuff is, I believe, yes, that's who that is. The one in the cell, I, I don't know. Unless he like found a way to split his personalities and bodies somehow. And like the nervous, scared one is there and the confident one is 
the other place. I don't know. The only thing I think of, at least. So, who when they, knows? When they revealed him um, in this other world, that was the first thing. I was like, well, who was in the... Mm-hmm. Now, was in the do you think Rita killed him or absorbed him? I think she absorbed him. That's where I thought. And when the article said that smothering him, she... we didn't see a body. Right. So... Yeah. <laughs> I'm right there. No body, no death. Yep. That's how it always is in all of these shows. And some shows, even if you have a body, still no death. So, all right. Edge of History. Uh, this one, these are not as long of a recap. Um, there's more episodes, so a lot happens, but it's a short span of time as far as these things. So, Bear with me, and I apologize for the yawning. I don't know why I am, but I'm fighting through it, and it's constantly on my head, so that's probably why I'm yawning more, because if you think about it more, you're going to yawn more, and yada, 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 yada. You've always done that when you talk a lot. Yeah, it's trying. <laughs> National Treasure, Edge of History, Episode 3. We're going to the laughingplace.com. This is by Bill Galsell. All three episodes are by Mr. Bill. Uh we're going to this one's called Graceland Gambit and what an episode to come back to that's something we both really enjoy Jess has had her world turned upside down after Liam revealed the secret academic paper that was written by her mother he also had a video showing her mother discussing the treasure with a group of academics with Oren and Tasha Jess and Liam play the video and are amazed to see Jess's mother relate the story of the Mesoamerican treasure Jess's father comes in at the end of the video to defend her mother, and Jess's perception of her dad completely changes. The video concludes with a home movie of her mother and father dancing together. Jess is shocked by the video, especially since she had never heard of her father's voice before. Very touching, like, opening scene here. And, like, I really like this Jess character and the actress that plays her, which is um, Lisette Oliveira. Like, she's done really good with this season and show. And I... I'm excited to see more of her. Like I, I hope we get like a season two or a National Treasure three, because I think that's what we're kind of leading up to, um, because of one of the episodes we'll talk about, and I'll talk about it more there. But there's there's definitely something going on. Yeah. Um, da, 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 da. Let's see. The group comes to a decision about what to do. They know that Billy Pierce is a dangerous character who will stop at nothing to acquire the treasure. Liam assures Jess that he is committed to the treasure, and with Tasha and Orin on her side, Jess is decided to pursue the treasure as well. With Ethan, When Ethan shows up, he agrees to help, too. Agent Ross still feels like there's something that isn't right about Peter Sadusky's death. Despite being encouraged to drop her investigation, Ross proceeded with the toxicology reports on Sadusky, and after speaking with the doctor at the morgue, the results were in. Clues are needed on where to go next, so the group returns to Liam's house to search through Peter Sadusky's clue room. As Orin sees the room for the first time, he is blown away by the uh, incredible artifacts on display. The artifacts used by Ben Gates and Riley Poole to find the Lost Templar treasure are prominently located on a shelf with a label, Do Not Touch. Just before Orin touches one of the items, Tasha reminds him to keep his hands to himself. Really enjoyed seeing the clue room just for those artifacts. And they're yeah. nice callbacks to the first two movies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, it seems like that's what they're doing really, really well with this series is connecting it to the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we get Ben Gates brought up a lot, right? Uh, up to this point and afterward, right? And so, so. I'm, again, I'm, I'm telling you, I think at the end of the season, uh, 
Nicholas Cage is going to be in it. I, I, I just like as a small little throwaway came, not throwaway came, but like a small cameo. Yeah. But uh, for sure, because of the next episode we're going to talk about um, mm-hmm. of why. Um, as the team searches through the room, multiple clues are seen, but none seem to have any importance except for a note about the Sun King. Will some detective work the group learns that the note points to Elvis Presley in a possible guitar in a hidden room at his Graceland home? Is that a thing, by the way? Like, I, I've never uh, heard that. So the the Ebony Dove guitar is real. Okay. Um, but now there are the Graceland archives. Mm-hmm. They are not in the house. Gotcha. And it's and the house is not laid out like it is in the show. They don't have his suits displayed throughout the house. Mm. Uh, all those are in one building on the property, and then the plaza across the street. So it's probably just a. Uh kind of cool way to tie things to history and stuff like that, which the movies did great job too as well. Like this, the whole time I was like, I need to ask Chris this. Did this, is there really like a, is there a hidden room in Graceland kind of thing? Not that kind of hidden room, but you know, you were saying a few minutes ago about Nick Cage popping back up. Harvey Cattell, who, who is our FBI agent. um, Oh, now I'm drawing a blank on his name. I'm horrible with names. Oh, I'm the same way. It'll come up, I'm sure, in a little bit. But he, uh, he, um, he's done a couple of movies that had Elvis-type characters in them, like hmm. impersonators or whatever. And, of course, Nicolas Cage is a huge Elvis fan. So, of oh. all the ways... I mean, he used to be married to his daughter, right? So, um, of all the th- ways that they could have tied this clue in, they used Elvis to do it. Mm-hmm. And and that really is his great great grandmother. That's really cool. So, it's, I, um, I enjoyed seeing it, and it's one of those things. That eventually, I would love to go down to Memphis to see Graceland. Um, but take a road trip sometime. That's what I'm saying. We we might do that just just to do it, you know? Yeah. Because why not? But but uh, that made me the most suspicious that Nick Cage has more to do with this series than what we've. Mm. Let's believe, and that he's going to pop up. God, next episode points all the signs to yes, and yeah. I'm just I'm really excited because I'm I'm all in on the show. Um, mm. And this is the episode I think that did it for me was all the detective work. Well, and this one and the next one, the sixth episode was okay, but these other two really grasped me and got their hooks into me. Billy continues to ponder Jess and her refusal of money. To Billy, this should have been a no-brainer for this young girl. She needs money. Billy could have solved her problems and gave her cash. So why does she refuse, and how did Jess open the clue box on her own? At the morgue, the doctor questions Ross about her toxicology order. She comes clean and admits that she disregarded an order to cancel the request. The doctor thanks her for her honesty, and then tells her that she the tests were inconclusive, but there were a lot of unknown substances in Sadusky's body, and a bright orange stain on his hands. Ross looks to track down a medication Peter was taking in hopes to determine foul play. On the way to Graceland, the group devises a plan that is audacious and will need a large amount of luck to help them succeed. Using moths to trick the staff at Graceland, Jake and 
Ethan will pose as exterminators to access the secret room and photograph the prized hidden guitar. The plan works, Orton releases the moth, and while they gain access to the secret room with photos of the guitar and then escape, it's not enough. It turns out the guitar does not hold the clue, but is instead a gold record in the secret room, which is what they should have been looking for. Jess won't quit with Liam beside her. They re-enter Graceland. Liam takes the opportunity to strike the guests and employees by grabbing a guitar and singing an Elvis song. While this is happening, Jess craftily sneaks into the hidden room and finds the gold record. She plays a very distorted message where she records for later analysis. Despite close calls with security and the arrival of the real pest control, Jess and Liam escape with a clue. I thought it was very funny. Like She um, was telling the security guard, um, oh, you know, he... He's new, loves Elvis, doesn't speak any English except for Elvis songs. And he said, oh, you know, started speaking a bunch of Spanish, which was just as big. Uh, she's like, oh, I didn't know he spoke Spanish. He goes, yeah, I did that for a while. He used to sing at a uh, Mexican restaurant or something like that and picked up or something. Uh, I thought yeah. that was very funny. And he said, put him on the lifelong band list and don't let them come back. <laughs> so No fly list. No fly list, yeah. In Mexico, Billy is leading her team into a cave in hopes of finding the next artifact. There are ancient uh, Mesoamerican clues all throughout the cave, which makes Billy think they are on the right track. When she realizes that they are walking into as a trap, it's too late as one of her security personnel, Nate, is lost to a hidden trap. Ethan can spot the chemistry between Liam and Jess. Protective of his friend, he goes to see Liam and tells him Jess about Jess's DACA status. Feeling guilty about what he did, Ethan tells Jess that while she's upset, she forgives him. Now, wanting to let a big issue like Jess's DACA status to stop things, she meets with Liam and tells him that she knows she knows that he knows. She explains to Liam that she didn't tell him because when people find out, it changes their perception of her. Liam was fine with everything and informs Jess that he has decoded the scramble message on the record. It's a recording of Elvis giving a clue to the next piece of the puzzle. Billy is mourning the loss of mourning the loss of Nate and drinking to his memory as they fly back from Mexico. When she is at the lowest of her moments, Billy gets a helping hand in the treasure hunt as a recording of the Elvis message is sent to her. Oh, what a plot twist at the end. I really, really, really like Liam. And I like his, like how he's, you know, I don't want to do this because my dad died because of this. Um, and it's reason my grandfather's reason killed him. And especially with this next episode, we're going to talk about how he kind of flips from that, realizes he's doing the exact same thing with his dad. He's trying to help clear his memory of everything and realizes his grandfather was not really that bad of a guy. So, even if he was crazy in his older age. It's the one member of the of the team, so to speak, that keeps kind of getting on my nerves, though, is Ethan. Yes, I, I'm not a big like, a fan of him. Even no. with the sixth episode, like I'm like, I don't... Like, pick a lane, buddy. Like, what, what well, are you trying to do here? I, I also feel like he's not really bringing anything to the show. No. You know, like... If you took him out of it, especially now that the Liam character is established, it wouldn't miss anything. Right. Ethan's kind of there. Even with his girlfriend, like it, that doesn't make sense either. Like when they brought her in, I was like, am I supposed to remember who this is? Cause, or she's like a newer character. She's a newer character, so it's not a big deal. I think she's also a plant, though, from Billy. It'd be. The girlfriend character. So we will see. Maybe Ethan sacrifices himself to. Mm. Because I, I keep trying to I keep trying to remember that these are not like teenagers, they're young twenty year olds like they're twenty two twenty three year olds. I, I keep having to tell myself that, and I don't know why, but it's I keep trying. Hey, these are older kids. Like these are the age that Nick and oh no Nick, uh, Ben and Riley were, in their movies. So, 
it's part of the frustrating thing is you know again with ethan's characters uh he's always negative about it mm -hmm. whatever they're doing he's always guys you really shouldn't do this and it's like shut up right dude come on <laughs> so yeah i would just rather them write him out at this point yeah even the the dopey orlin or orin is bring something to the table because like he right. he's he's that dumb but know certain smart things about certain things yeah so. and he's always willing to go along and help right it doesn't take much convincing either no. <laughs> um episode four titled uh charlotte let's see jess has a mountain of clues and a hint from elvis presley himself but isn't sure how to proceed ethan brings some much needed refreshments to the group with a box of cupcakes but that still doesn't help provide any direction for the team on a private jet at the airport, Riley Poole, played by Justin Bartha, has just landed for the funeral of Peter Sadusky. We knew he was in the series, which didn't know when it was going to happen. Um, talking with Ben Gates on the phone, Riley describes how his podcast is going to be adapted into a streaming service now and that Ben is going to be his first guest. Informed that Ben's daughter Charlotte is sick and his wife Abigail must work, Riley is left to represent the group, group himself at the wake. Again, very well, a very good way to tie Ben into the the season and we get more hints of it coming up but i love seeing riley like justin bartha is just funny and he has not missed a beat from his character you know from what decades ago at this point so uh jess has spent many hours consulting with the mesoamerican experts about the validity of the story behind the treasure she meets nothing but opposition is a form that her conclusions are wrong when Liam Sadusky invites Jess and her friends Tasha, Orin, and Ethan to Peter's wake, the group has a chance to scout the clue room for more facts about the treasure. Billy has her own issues to deal with in New York City. Attending a board meeting of mysterious individuals who want to find the treasure, Billy assures them that she knows what she is doing and plays the Elvis clue for them. When she and her bodyguard are attacked in the parking garage, uh, Billy proves how capable she is and is easily defe defeats the aggressor. At the wake, Jess imp can empathize with Liam about how he is feeling. Stumped by the clues provided and feeling emotional after thinking about her mother and father, Jess is introduced to Riley thanks to Tasha as she shares the clues with him, which I completely forgot the pool. What Riley was not the one that could come up with these things. He was the Orin character for the most part. Um, uh, Riley walks away sounding out the clues when he meets with Agent Hendricks, uh, which is who you were thinking of. Uh, Hendrick asks him if he's working on anything new, and Riley tells him that it's something he can discuss. He's nothing. It's not something he can discuss with him now. Uh, first of all, this is in quotations from uh, Bill here. First of all, they brought back the guy who played the FBI agent who first met with Gates and Poole about the Declaration of Independence from the first movie, and now and now are the producers coyly hinting at a third movie. This is awesome on so many levels. This is where my thought come in. At the end of this episode, we see a little bit more with Ben and Riley talking. And I'm like, are they setting up a third movie? Because he says, there's nothing I can talk to you about. And he hints to the group that they're working on something together as well. And I'm like, are we really are we going to like launch into that? And somehow Jess joins them or somehow somewhere like all the crew does in a way. Because it's, uh, he kind of indicates yeah, it's been 15 years that we've been working on this. Yeah. And you kind of wonder if it's because it's just three people basically working on it. Mm -hmm. So if they bring this new crew on fresh eyes, fresh minds. Yeah. And Plus, you know, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking we're getting a third movie. 
Uh, and yeah. see, either that or that's going to be the premise of the season two. Right. Um, and with the the Billy's, with Billy either still being the villain or someone else from that boardroom being the villain. Because that's just the easy way to, to make a new villain, you know. Just hire someone from this boardroom, throw them out there. But. Maybe Billy recruits Ethan. Mm, we could give his character something to do. Yeah. <laughs> Agent Ross is also at the wake and spends some time talking to Peter's nurse. Ross decides to search the leftover medications in Peter's office to help eliminate some substances from his toxicology report. During her snooping, Ross discovers a toxic plant in Sadusky's office and wonders if it's connected to the former FBI agent's death. Outside, she's met by Hendrix, who informs her that he knows about the toxicology report. Trying to explain her actions, Ross is surprised to find a level of support from Hendrix. He tells her about his first meeting Ben Gates and Riley Poole and how he didn't follow up on their tip about the Declaration of Independence, much like her from the first episode. Hendrix tells Ross that if she has a hunch about something, she needs to proceed with her investigation with his blessing. Riley is stumped by the clues to, uh, given to him and is trying to text Ben about what they mean. Um, but if you notice, though, there's some, like, not sketchy going on with them, too, but you can tell they're on a rocky relationship, I would feel. Because, like, he goes to send the text message and then erases it. So, I'm like, what's up with that? Uh, let's see... Uh, Jess has been searching for Liam. Inside the mansion, he finds Sadusky's office and the secret clue room. Jess has been searching for Liam, but finds Riley in the secret room. Riley is shocked to see the ship model of a Charlotte in the office and mistakenly touches it, which sends the office into a lockdown mode, which is a previous callback from last week's episode of uh, Orin almost touching the same thing and almost locking them in. Uh, the oxygen level is dropping in the clue room, and Riley and Jess must figure out the password to get out the room alive. And this is, again, this is something I think this show does really well. All of these clues and how do we get from point A to point B with all of these different zigs and zags. And, like, there was, like, four different, like, answers they had to give that, you know, what was Sadusky's life because he was had dementia, so he was forgetting things. So how could they do that? That's just very well done. Um, hidden away in a back garden, Leon's approached by Peter's former nurse and tells him that his grandfather loved his music. Shocked because his grandfather was never at one of Liam's performances, the nurse tells him they found his music on SoundCloud and that Liam's song about his van was his favorite. As a eulogy is being given by Agent Hendricks, Jess and Riley are desperately searching for the passcode to the room. They have some clues but only a small margin of error before entombed until death in the office. Searching the office, Riley is continuously impressed by Jess and tells her how much she reminds him of Ben. Leon plays his grandfather's favorite song while Tasha is wondering where Jess and Riley are. With just moments to spare, the two get free from the clue room and induce that the next clue in the treasure hunt is connected to Sacagawea and the Journal of William Clark, which happens to be on display at the governor's mansion. Leaving on his private jet, Riley details his experiences to Ben via phone, describing how even Ben wouldn't have believed what happened to him. But it's the phone call that Riley makes which is shocking and could upend the trajectory of Jess and her friends. Riley tells Jess that Ben's mother was approached to decode the Elvis's message might mean. Somehow, Billy Pierce got a copy of the clue, and Riley warns Jess that someone who is her friend may not be her friend at all. Love this episode. Hopefully, it's not the last we get Riley or Ben in it. I don't think it will be, but I thought that was a very nice and good way to tie them all together. You know, you mentioned the uh, potential Rocky relationship with between Ben and Riley. And I wonder if that's because, like you said earlier, Riley never brought a ton to the table. Mm -mm. Ben was figuring everything out. Right. And then the second movie, his wife was yeah. 
you know, also playing off of him as well, and even more yeah. than Riley was. So, and so that could be that he's maybe he's not feeling useful. So right. that's why he's doing the podcast. And oh, that and, would make sense too if he's not feeling useful because he wants to figure out that riddle by himself. He's going to send it yeah. to Ben to decode it and then erase it because like I could do this kind of thing. But it could um, also be, it could also be that he sees in Riley someone he can recruit mm-hmm. to help him. And that takes pressure off him. He can focus on what he's best at. Right. Oh, man. it's They can go a lot of places with it. And I'm curious to see if we get any news before it's Disney. And I want to see all the um, the views and ratings from this show. I don't imagine they're low because this is a, a banging show. But no, virtually no uh, advertisement for it when it first came on. So yeah. I don't know if it was the holiday season reason, but the national treasure movies were really great. <laughs> so I don't, I don't understand that, but no. maybe we will see. So I, you know, this podcast like us can get the name out there so it could get more yeah. episode five titled bad romance. Uh, Billy is trying to crack the next clue of the quest. And despite her wealth and brilliance, uh, her best henchman can't come up with a real lead. Jess and Tasha are sweeping their apartment for bugs because of Riley's warning. Uh, Jess doesn't believe that Liam has betrayed them, but Tasha isn't so certain. Despite her own skepticism, Jess decides to go with Liam to the governor's mansion to check out Meriwether Lewis's journal to see if that is where the next clue can be found. Billy interrupts a black market auction in exchange for a rare artifact. Billy wants the lost codex of Melanche, the founder of the Daughters of the Plume Serpent, which is such a badass name, um, who hid the treasure from the Spanish. Billy can't, can't be persuasive and gets the Cortez journal that Melanche wrote in. Jess is driving with Ethan and tells him that Billy has has the Elvis clue. She then tells him that someone must have given her the clue, and Ethan immediately, Ethan immediately suspects Liam as being the mole. At the governor's mansion, Jess and Ethan walk through the building, only to see Ethan at the exhibit. Uh, oh, and ask see Liam at the exhibit asking about the journal. I had that one wrong there. Afraid that he will see them, Jess and Ethan hide. They learn that the journal is only brought out on display for special occasions because of the deteriorating condition. Liam is told by the museum employee that he would be able to see it the following evening if he attends the governor's ball. As Liam leaves without seeing Jess or Ethan, the two overhear him on the phone saying to someone that he needs money wired to him today. Jess returns to the apartment and meets up with Tasha. She informs Jess that she hacked into Liam's bank account and reveals that Liam has just had a massive deposit into his bank. Uh, listen, Tasha is like committing so many crimes, so many cyber crimes between them the past like three episodes. She hacked the the cameras at the Elvis facility. She got into like some security stuff, and now she's hanging into bank accounts. Like, I mean, a lot, a lot of, a lot of issues here. <laughs> she's uh, she's the national treasure oracle. Right. She's. Ah, that's a good way to put that. She's the lady in the chair. Uh, (laughs) at work Jess is trying to avoid Liam but can't seem to get away from him he tells her about his experience at the governor's mansion that he got them two tickets to the governor's mansion party the next night which was $500 a piece I'm like no thank you yeah what no No, I'm not going to a ball for $500 (laughs) better be damn good food right (laughs) I mean all of it to be bottomless is what it is go back right (laughs) Uh, Liam wonders what's wrong with Jess and tells him about uh, Liam wonders what's wrong and Jess tells him about Billy having the Elvis clue and that she knows he has $50,000 wired in his bank account. Liam was hurt reminds Jess that this is what treasure hunting does to people and make them paranoid and skeptical. 
Agent Ross meets with the coroner and informs him of the toxic plant she found in Peter Sadusky's office. The coroner tells her that he will check Sadusky's stomach contents to see if the plant was used to kill him. In Mexico City, Billy is seeking out a transla translation of Melanchay's writing. The professor Billy speaks with informs her that another young girl called her recently about the lost writing. Jess and Tasha are talking, and Jess is wondering if maybe she made a mistake in not trusting Liam. Orin arrives at the apartment and starts playing with the bug detector, which sets off the alarm right away. Tasha and Jess learn there's a bug planet in Orange Shoe, which Billy has been listening into. Billy learns that the Cortez's journal is a fake, and the professor she sought out for help tells her that he knows that he knows she's looking for the Pan American treasure. He tells Billy that it is a myth and that Malenche was a traitor to her people. At Liam's house, Jess goes to apologize for suspecting him of being a mole. Liam is hurt by the fact that she wrote him off and that hurts Jess even more. She realizes she had given him the benefit of the doubt. The two reconcile and forgive each other. Jess learns that the 50 grand was a loan from Liam's mom to help pay the property taxes on the house. Which, I mean, I don't know what these kind of moms these are, but $50,000 is a loan. Is a, it's quite a bit, you know. Just, hey, here, have this for the property tax. Uh, mm. Here you go. Yeah, I can do without this. Right. Oh. <laughs> Billy returns to her plane, learning that the bug on Orin's shoe was found. Billy quickly learns from an online video posted by Orin that Jess is wearing her medallion, which represents the daughters of the plumed serpent. Billy is wondering if Jess is the daughter of Rafael Rios, the famed treasure hunter who died 20 years ago. Billy believed that after Rafael died, the, the wife and daughter died trying to cross the border. Billy learns that the governor's ball is this evening, and that could be the clue that connects the Mary Lewis journal at the mansion. Jess brings Liam to Orin so that he can get his tuxedo altered for the evening event, while Liam and Jess are getting ready for the ball when Orin's girlfriend shows a wrench into the evening plan. She plans to get a ticket as well, and the four of them could double date for the evening. Awkward. Agent Ross learns from the doctor that the flowers are contributing factors to Dusky's death. Amidst some flirting between the two, Ross pieces together the strange story that Jess and Tasha reported about a kidnapping with an event at the U.S. Kiss Kid. She calls wanting to look at some security camera footage from the ship. Everyone has a ticket for the governor's ball, and the lack of time for Liam's isn't going to stop Jess. While Orrin plans to network at the party and pitch his sneaker show, Ethan gives him a list of things he cannot say or do during the party, which includes pitching a sneaker show I did anyone who will listen. Liam informs the group that they will have an opportunity to look at the journal without prying eyes because the party is also doubling as a surprise birthday party for the governor. In a separate room, Liam and Jess see the journals on display and have a plan to photograph all the pages and then reset the log before anyone even notices. Jess and Ethan get forced to reprise a dance from high school and they will proceed to crush the performance with the dance floor being cleared for them. Liam is less than pleased to see how well the two get along and the looks that they show each other on the dance floor. The cake comes out, Liam can't be found anywhere, and Jess heads to the journal room, only to discover him leaving the room with the journal and a state trooper close state trooper close behind Jess accusing her of stealing the book running from the police Jess only has moments to get out of the governor's mansion Tasha causes distraction which allows Jess to escape the mansion with a police hot on her tail just when she is about to be caught Billy pulls up beside her and offers her a ride dun, dun. what a cliffhanger <laughs> I mean, yeah and it just ended I was like oh man especially because we've been kind of beat over the head about her DACA status and then if she gets in trouble with the law she's out you know and so you could see on her face, again, the actress does such a great job portraying it, of her thinking hard. Like, do I get in here with my my arch nemesis who's trying to steal this treasure and all this other stuff, or do I get arrested and deported? And like, there's like that good moment that you can tell it's what she's grasping with. And I'm very curious about this next week's episode. I'm really excited to watch it because, I mean, why did Liam steal the book? 
and why did um, and what's gonna happen with Jess now that Billy has her? Yeah, um, his disappearing when they were dancing made you think that's what did it. But I wonder if he overheard someone. Mm-hmm. I wonder if one of Billy's crew yeah. was there. Yeah. Because she knew about and the dance and everything. So, oh man, I don't know. I, it, this is a good show, and I can't wait to see more of it. I mean, we got four more episodes, and I don't. It, this is like some of those MCU shows that don't feel like long enough. I feel like this one's a perfect length so far, and how much we've gotten already too. Like, there's not been a a slow episode or like a boring episode. It's we're started here, and we're. This is like a mini movie, an hour each week, and it feels properly done so yeah 100 percent. releases this week i'm glad to be done talking for a minute <laughs> monday january 9th koala man on hulu which is a marvel property by the way um so something oh, to wow. to look into it's animated he again and, but he and squirrel girl are uh compatriots that's what it is i saw it briefly no there's something with it like her she's Close to that something, but something to look into. Thursday, January 12th, Vikings Valhalla Season 2 drops on Netflix. And Thursday, January 12th as well, Velma, the Scooby-Doo spinoff show on HBO Max. And then Sunday, January 15th, next week from today, The Last of Us premieres on HBO Max. Or HBO proper. And oh man, I'm so, so excited about this show. I can't wait for it. Um... I'm just going to go ahead and let people know that most likely Vikings Valhalla will make Tyler's top five TV shows. Bite me. <laughs> Along with The Last of Us, probably. So, you know, that, that's two of the five. <laughs> well, we got to figure out the other three throughout the year. <laughs> I mean, National Treasure is probably going to be there. Yes, yeah, so there's three. Does Loki make it? I mean, who knows? Maybe. Uh, can they pull off a good season, too? <laughs> I hate you. Uh, oh, on to movies. So our movie review for this week was Glass Onion. Uh, now they they subtitled it A Knives Out Mystery, uh, which I read Ryan Johnson was not happy about. He didn't I wouldn't want. have been either. But... Uh, he, he wanted people to know that they're connected, but he didn't want it obvious like that. He wanted people to just know like, like you do with novels. Right. That it's part of a run. Um, so we're going to try and review this as best as possible without getting spoilery because there's a lot of twists and turns and mm-hmm. reveals and things that you're not made aware of initially that you then get made aware of and we don't want to spoil the big moments because it kind of makes the movie um, I'm just going to pull the band-aid off and say that I gave it four stars on Letterboxd okay that's not bad um the acting in here is fantastic. Everybody does well. The directing, the writing, everything seems to play very, very well. Um, the basic story is that... Uh, here we go with names again. <laughs> I've got them all pulled up. <laughs> uh, Blanc. Blanc is... Um, Apparently, he's spent most of the uh, most of his recent time in the bathtub. Mm-hmm. 
because the because it's it takes place in 2020, which I really enjoyed that they that they did it this way. Because I mean, they started this is one of the ones that got like kept getting pushed back and paused and stuff because of the pandemic. Yeah, the but it's not very realistic. Cause if he'd been in the bathtub that much, he would have been very very pruny. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but he's even eating his meals in there, and he's he's on his laptop playing um, Among Us mm-hmm. with uh, with Angela Lansbury, <laughs> Stephen Sondheim, and uh, Natasha Leon, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, right. and and Kareem yeah. Abdul-Jabbar. Um, so that's very very funny. I did read that uh, they were they wanted the people on the call to understand how Among Us worked and how it was played and angela lansbury at one point just stopped him and said just tell me the lines i trust you (laughs) uh but he gets he gets a box uh with a invitation in it to go to this party Mm -hmm. um and the party is going to be on this private island at the glass onion which is this huge residence um, that has been built by Ed Norton's character. The island, though, it's called Piece of, uh, piece of Sheet. Yeah. Piece of Sheet. Um, but Norton plays Miles Braun, who is not not to foreshadow too much, but he's one of those people that is very good at making it seem like he knows what he's talking about. Good Elon Musk character. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what everyone's drawing comparisons to, although Ryan Johnson said he didn't have anybody in mind when he created it. Mm-hmm. Um, Wink. But part of this crew that makes their way to the island is Madeline Klein playing Whiskey, who is the girlfriend of Dave Batista's um, what was his character's name? Duke. Duke. Who has his own YouTube and Twitch channel. page and everything. It's very, very funny. <laughs> yeah. Extremely funny. Uh, and, and we do find out from her at one point that she has political aspirations. Mm-hmm. And so she realizes she needs to get away from him. Um, Kate Hudson is in this as Birdie, a former model who um, apparently is her sweat pant line is uh, being made in a sweatshop. Which... <laughs> but she thought that's what they were made. <laughs> oh, like, this is those small little dumb jokes I loved in this movie. But the, the thing I like about that character, too, is Kate Hudson in real life has a line of athletic wear. Uh, so it's kind of like he, he took this in creating that character, Ryan Johnson did, and said... All right, let's kind of tie this to who I want playing this role. Right. Uh, Jessica Henwick is Peg, Birdie's assistant. Uh, Catherine Hahn is here as Claire DeBella. She killed she it. Is, yeah, fantastic. She's a politician. She's a governor. Do they give us this? Is it Massachusetts? Uh, Connecticut. Connecticut. Um, so she's realizing her political aspirations. Janelle Monet had two parts in this um we won't detail um uh, all of them but she plays andy who was miles's um really 
she was his she was the Ivana Trump to his Donald. She yes. was the brains. She was the brains behind everything, and uh, and had the talent, and he was just the face for PR basically. Right. Um. Ethan Hawke is in this as Miles' assistant. Brief, just very brief. <laughs> very, very brief. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr. kills it as uh, mm-hmm. as uh, Lionel, and. Uh, I think he's the last of the bunch that's the main crew, though. Uh, you get guest appearances from Hugh Grant. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's voice is here. Um, so, very, very cool. Uh, Serena Williams has a nice little cameo. That, <laughs> that was very funny. <laughs> uh, but essentially, all these people gather on the island. Uh, Miles has planned this big murder mystery weekend. And... Um, because it happens fairly early, I will say this: uh, Benoit kind of spoils it. That was probably my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the whole thing. Like it, because it, it, this doesn't spoil anything. This is very, very, very light spoilers. So they sit down to the dinner, right? And he goes, "What do we? What, what's the prize of for this?" He's and, uh, Norton's like, or Miles is like, prize? He goes, like, like an iPad. Or he said there'd be like a prize for winning. He goes, yeah, yeah, I guess we could do an iPad. And he goes, oh. And jumps up and says, you know, it's her. This is what happens. Uh, that's why you're sitting there. Here are the clues that pointed out to it. And he goes, all right. And I win. And I was like, huh. Okay. And I was like, okay, so this movie's over. <laughs> it, was, it was very well crafted, but shows you how smart Benoit is to all of this. Yeah, as soon as he gets to the dock and these people start arriving, he's like, he starts noticing their relationship to each mm-hmm. other and how close certain ones are to other people. And uh, so he he's piecing it together from the get-go. But this elaborate murder mystery weekend gets undone mm-hmm. just that quick. Someone but even asked, then, what do we do with the rest of the weekend? Yeah. <laughs> A lot yeah. of them are just going to go home, but... <laughs> but we we get glimpses of things that, like there's there's a scene out by a pool and we see um, a couple of people talking. But in the background, you have um, Claire and Lionel. They've swam to the other end of the infinity pool, mm-hmm. and you can tell they're talking about something. They they drop they do that really well. They drop hints of things. Yeah. And, of course, later on, we get the same setting, the same moment, but we get to hear what they said. Mm-hmm. It's from, and, they do like different perspectives throughout this yeah. movie, and which we really didn't get the first one. I wish we watched that one. Uh, for this movie, I gave it three and a half stars. I didn't like it as much as the first one, just because of a certain thing that happens. I don't want to say because it will spoil it, but... Uh, I did enjoy it. I, I'm excited because we are getting another one of these. And I like the idea of having all of these different famous actors and actresses just thrown into a giant cast and to have a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I think one of my favorite parts was the very beginning of the dinner party. And then there's a, th- there's a very throwaway character that I thought was very underutilized. And I thought it was just there for like a, a laughing point. Um, the little stoner on the, no, that's not right. 
because um, I, I don't want to spoil things. But like, there's one character on this just very throwaway that you find out is just a throwaway character, like as as nothing whatsoever. And I'm like, oh, I thought we were gonna put that into place, but I guess not. And then there's a, a set piece that gets used, overly used, I think, with the sound and visual that I thought was going to be used for something different than what it was. But the end of this movie and how the the killer gets caught is very like heart, heartbreaking for me because <laughs> of what happens. But uh, the it was a good movie. I mean, I, we love these murder mystery uh, shows because I'm, you know, I really want to figure out if I can figure out who did it. This one, I kind of did, but kind of didn't. So it, it fooled me. You know, I, like, like I said, I gave it four stars. I, I do agree with you because I, I think we're thinking about the same thing. Um, that thing that kept happening mm-hmm. uh, with the sound and the and the visual. Um, uh, was really it, it was almost up there to uh, the the laughing goats. Yeah, from Thor: Love and Thunder. It was just like, okay, we get it enough. Yeah, we we, we don't need this to continue. Um, but I like I I was curious at the very beginning. So Miles, the way he invites everybody to the island is he sends them these boxes that presumably have no way in. Right, and so they have to it. They have to figure out how to open the box, and then there's puzzles within. The, that was a cool sequence mm-hmm. to watch. I would have liked, and it's a good way to introduce our characters, like our, without having to just have like a whole you know thirty minutes focused on them. It was like, hey, this is who these people are, and this is how they're connected. Well, that's not how they're connected, but this is you know they're just a group of friends, and they solve this puzzle together. And they show you who's the smart one, who's got this, and you know, and who's the dumb one, just kind of there. Uh, but there's one character that, that well, Andy, this isn't really a spoiler, that says forget it and just takes a hammer to the damn thing and then gets the invitation out of it. And I was like, huh, there's not really any fun in that, but okay. <laughs> Duke's mom actually solves a lot of it. Yes. He's, he's got it in the kitchen and she's already opened it. Right. He's like, She's she's already opened this thing. I think my mom broke it. And they're like, how did she get it open? And I forget the term that they use, uh, but it's basically the top of the box is like a seeing eye mm-hmm. puzzle. So you have to kind of cross your eyes almost to get the... And it has an arrow that points to the little spot that you push down. Like, yeah. I wish they made things like this. I would buy one just for just to try and figure it out. The music puzzle would never have figured it out. Some of the other right. stuff I would have, but like, or at least what they showed, because there was a lot of puzzles throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah. But <laughs> eventually I probably would take it in the hammer and so say, forget it, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the bad thing about those things in real life is if you figure it out, then what? Right. You're kind of done. <laughs> yeah. It's like you could do it all over again. <laughs> uh, but very good. I, I did like some of the special effects mm-hmm. as well. The one thing about this movie, and I love when movies do this, is virtually everything that you get introduced to gets utilized. Yep. Um, there's not a crazy amount that 
they show off and then they just never come back to. Right. Like everything that uh, is said or shown is for a direct purpose. Like every yeah. single thing. And they did nice little uh, little call outs to like there's a there's a painting hanging up in the main living space of the glass onion. And it's Edward Norton's head on Brad Pitt's body mm-hmm. from Fight Club. <laughs> it's so dumb. And it's just like Okay, we're doing this. Right. Okay, um, and one of the one of the glass sculptures I read was actually a glass version of the statue from the Maltese Falcon, the old mm. film noir. Um, but sadly, that that was not long for the world. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, just but just phenomenal. Um, way of utilizing everything that they show us there's not a lot wasted right see so so we've got this netflix world now we got enola holmes and sherlock the holmeses we've got benoit Blanc, and we also have the murder mystery of adam sandler and um oh, what's her name jennifer aniston. jennifer aniston which they need to bring a sequel to us they are quickly. they're filming it right now are they yeah they're filming it right now so i actually saw I'm a watching. set picture of it earlier so, cool. I'm like, I didn't even know they're making a second one, but I'm glad they are. <laughs> so, we'll add that to the list whenever it drops. I'm assuming either at the end of this year or next year. Maybe we'll get the characters from Murder Mystery and Anola Holmes. Wouldn't that be funny if they all somehow ended up that's on one the, That's why all, all of these people, just all these super genius detectives just, just put together. Although Adam Sandler's not really a super genius detective, it just still works, but <laughs> that'd be fun. I would really enjoy that. Good one. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I liked it. Um, These are always fun. Yeah. Too bad we got to wait probably a year and a half or so for the next one. But hopefully not as long because 2020 is the one that really put a a pause on this one. Yeah. So. Um. Next week. We must not fight <laughs> ourselves. We have we're, to. We have to do it. We're going to do bad things to ourselves next week. Uh, we're going to watch Black Adam. I'm going with extremely low expectations. So if it's bad, it's bad. If it's great, then wonderful. <laughs> blew, my, blew my expectations out of the water, so we'll see. I'm going to try and find a way to multitask. <laughs> One eye on the movie, so I only waste half my time. <laughs> right. Um, no, I hopefully it's better than some people have said oh i I texted you this but i didn't send this i hadn't said anything about it so every week several times a week i look on best buy and you and google black panther wakanda forever still book there's not one i don't know for what reason why but there is not a black panther wakanda forever still book which is baffling to me because every mcu project has a still book so do what probably have to go to zavi that's well there's not like there's not one like no one has made one and there's not i can't find it anywhere which is weird uh yeah so i'm gonna keep looking but because it comes to disney plus february 1st which i'm like i don't understand why because yeah, it, it's usually like two or three weeks after the movie the still gets announced anyways so while looking for it i go to best buy's website and it says titles related to black panther <laughs> And the steelbook for Black Adam 
kept popping up. I said, fine, forget it. And so I bought it and it came in yesterday. I sent a picture to Chris with the steelbook. I said, this is what happens when you can't get Black Panther Wakanda forever in steelbook. You just buy the next best thing. So. So sad. So, so now I have um, it. Yeah, you, you got it. <laughs> um, I was just, I went to Zavi's website just to see if anything's going to pop, and it doesn't look like. Um, I don't even see Wakanda Forever offered. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's weird, right? Yeah. I don't understand it. That's strange. So, anyway, after we put ourselves through Black Adam <laughs> next week, uh, the next week we're going to watch The Pale Blue Eye, mm-hmm. uh, which is new to Netflix. Christian Bale. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it Robert Duvall that's in this as well? Yeah, that guy that plays Dursley from, uh, or Dudley from Harry Potter. He's Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's Edgar Allan Poe. And then we've got... Um, another murder mystery movie, Chris. Another murder mystery. <laughs> well, this is going to be the new theme for the channel. If the superhero thing goes under, we'll just... Right, we'll, we'll just go back to murder mystery movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so that that should be pretty good. Uh, the Pale Blue Eye dropped two days ago. Yep. So that's the newest cinema release. Um, Glass Onion, of course, came out the 23rd. And oh. Babylon, the 23rd. Now, Babylon's one I would like to see as well. Yes, that that's gonna, we're going to have to keep that. I'm going to put that on our list for whenever it drops into uh, digital. Or not digital, or streaming, rather. Let's yeah. see. Movies. I don't have anything to take off yet. Was Babylon? Whenever it comes to streaming, all right, baby. We've got a list building up too, man. I know. I'm on, listen. I'm okay with it though, because when we have these lulls when nothing really comes out, we got stuff to go to. Yeah. Uh, nothing. We're not going to talk about video games and stuff until and news until next week, which we return back to our full show. But new releases coming out this next week: Dragon Ball Z Kakarot on the next-gen consoles, and Dragon Ball Z Kakarot Bardock Alone Against Fate DLC drops January 13th, and then One Piece Odyssey drops January 13th for PlayStation 5, 4, and Xbox Series X. But ladies and gentlemen... Before we go, I read this earlier uh, about Glass Onion. Okay. Apparently there is a chance that in February, because it's a slow season for films uh, in theaters, they may put it back in theaters. It was only there mm-hmm. for one week before it went streaming, so they may put it back in theaters to see if it'll make some more money on the big screen. I think I would have liked it better if I watched it in theater. There's just something about that theater experience that would that pairs real well with this movie. Yeah. Because oh, no distractions, no fury trying to play, and yeah, that makes sense. I want to listen. We haven't been to a theater since, well, at least I haven't since Wakanda Forever, and that was beginning of November, beginning of October. Beginning of November. I miss yeah. it. Uh, I want to. Yeah. We got to well, find a movie. Month. Oh, that's right. Next month we got Blade Man. Just, just, yeah. just a small movie. Nothing crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening and watching this episode of the Nerdwide Podcast. We really hope you enjoyed the recap episode. Don't forget to share it on your favorite social media platforms and forget to rate and review this podcast on your podcasting services. Uh, don't forget to tell your friends about us as well. If you enjoy any of the shows we talk about a recap, don't forget to let them know. Word of mouth works just as well as social media. 
on social media. You can follow the NerdWide account on Twitter at nerd underscore wide. You can follow me personally at Ty underscore Haynes. And you can follow Chris at MFTN7 on Facebook side of things. Go to Facebook.com, search NerdWide Podcast, NerdWide.com, NerdWide. First thing that pops up is us. Follow us on either social media on Twitter or Facebook. And anytime an episode goes live, if you're not following on any of the social on the podcast services or anything, that's the first way to know when an episode is there for you. But until then, we return back to our regularly scheduled programming next week for episode 98. We are two away for the 100th Nerdwide Podcast episode. But guys, this has been the recap episode. We hope you enjoyed it, and we cannot wait until you see you next time. Bye, guys.